it's like a bucket of stuff um, that we can kind of mix up and then start to bring in different technologies and different forms of storytelling and go, well, actually, what's the right vehicle that supports this content in the best possible way? Uh, we talk about kind of having the right kind of metaphor sitting under that. So what what storytelling technique really supports the story that needs to be told and what relationship does that have to it? Um, that that's really important to us. It's kind of like your physical experience has something to do with the story that's being told at the same time. Hello and welcome to the Culture and Technology Podcast. My name is Severin Matusek and today we're talking about using technology to explore the deeper layers and hidden wonders of our material world. Think about a museum or an exhibition that you've been to that really stood out. What made it great? What sparked your imagination? What was it about the experience you had that really stuck in your mind? Most likely, you didn't just look at pictures on the wall. Museums today use a variety of experiences and storytelling methods to bring ideas that are otherwise difficult to imagine to life. One such person that designs these experiences is Dan Kerner. Joining us all the way from Melbourne, Australia, we asked Dan how he makes exhibitions tangible and interactive through the use of immersive technology. Dan, tell us a little bit about yourself. So I'm creative director of Sandpit and we're an experienced design studio um, based in Australia. Um, so we have a studio here in Melbourne um, and another one in Adelaide and another one in Brisbane, um, just on the northeast coast. Um, and we have been kicking around for 10 years. We actually turned 10 last week, which is very exciting. Ooh, um, thank you very much. Um, and we started back in 2012, um, we had a commission from the uh, Adelaide Festival, which is one of the major arts festivals in Australia, um, to go into the, the, the zoo in Adelaide and to create a work was the brief. It was really open. And they approached us because me and my um, key collaborator, Sam, um, we have a long history of working together, kind of creating formally unusual um, theatrical experiences or storytelling experiences using technology in various ways. Um, so we went into the zoo and we, we created this um, crazy um, interactive audio tour for uh, 200 people a night over four nights over the festival. Back in 2012, the, the technology that we used for that was, um, and I say technology in, in inverted commas, but um, every uh, participant in the experience had an iPod shuffle. I'm not sure if you remember oh. those devices. Oh, yeah, the, those the, very small the, ones, yeah. The tiny, yeah, the tiny little ones with a big play button on top. And um, uh, every participant needed to hear the sound in sync with everyone else. So we had a performer counting down from 10 and everyone pressed play all at the same time and it it was one of the most terrifying moments of my life going, is this thing going to work or not? But it did. Um, and uh, we actually really wanted everyone to hear different things. So initially everyone was hearing the same thing and then towards the end um, people tape it off and uh, actually had individual tracks and were experiencing the work in, in different ways. So we actually created 200 individual tracks in this monster Pro Tools session that we had to kind of bounce out one by one. Um, and that was the kind of crazy high-tech thing that we did. But we were lucky enough that the Melbourne Zoo really loved um, 
that experience and, and bought it in as a kind of permanent after hours experience. Um, and by that time, we could kind of evolve to some more some more sophisticated technology where there was no pushing of buttons and everyone was in sync automatically. And that's kind of how we started. And we, we thought, well, this is kind of fun and interesting. Mm-hmm. Let, let's see if we can work with the, the cultural sector to um, work with subject matter experts to really understand the the stories and more often not, not the science that they want to communicate and to use technology to kind of facilitate those experiences. And So over the past 10 years then, that zoo in Adelaide was the first project that kind of inspired you to, hey, there's something here. We could actually take our experience in theater and working with technology and creating experiences and apply them to museums, institutions, zoos. So the last 10 years, what were the projects that stood out to you? What were the projects that were the most interesting and most curious to explore for you? A lot of work we've been doing recently has been with paleontologists. So um, that is a really interesting space for us because so much of that science is speculative. It's kind of evolving all the time. The more discoveries we make, the more changes to that speculation happen. So it's actually a really fun imaginative space to sit down with a paleontologist to talk about things like um, we, we did a work recently for the Melbourne Zoo with the world's most complete triceratops fossil and to actually sit down with the paleontologist there and to think about um, what this thing might have been like in the real world how did it behave what was it in its environment like Another one, there's a, a, a prehistoric um, fossil seabed in the Ediacaran Hills in South Australia that we've been working with. And this is really early proto-life that kind of predates anything that we could really recognise as life now. And to actually think about these weird little alien creatures and how they might behave on the on the seabed um, and to work with kind of animators to, to bring those stories to life. It's a good space that we feel really kind of naturally comfortable in because we're using all of the skills we have as storytellers um, and the technologies that we can bring to that, but then kind of pairing with these really passionate, amazing <laughs> um, scientists who have this really intricate knowledge and ideas about how, how that could have that could have been. So how do you approach a project when a new project comes in, like museum comes to you and is like, hey, next year we have this exhibition about a triceratops <laughs> and we have this paleontologist, you know, discovering new things about it. Uh, what's the step-by-step process of how you get started? Do you do a lot of research? Do you talk to people? Do you look at the space that you can work with? How does it work creatively? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's really different every time and we love it being different every time. But um, but yes, the first stage of that process is to just kind of absorb as much information as you can. And um, some of that is kind of um, informational, um, where we're, again, talking to scientists and understanding the stories that they want to tell. Um, the other information we've been working with a lot lately is um, all of the amazing um Uh, First Peoples in Australia um, from all across the country. Melbourne Museum in particular has a really great First Nations team. Um, So to really understand the people um, who have been here for an incredibly long period of time in this place and to understand how they would approach telling these stories um, and being able to combine that information with the stories that we get from scientists. Um, And, yeah, you're totally right. We kind of look at the physical space that we have to work with and working at museums that can be very straightforward from a rectangular box into something really challenging, like a very weirdly architecturally designed U-shaped room. Um, and then what, once we've kind of got all of that information, it's like a bucket. It's like a bucket of stuff um, that we can kind of mix up and 
then start to bring in different technologies and different forms of storytelling and go, well, actually, what's the right vehicle that supports this content in the best possible way? Uh, We talk about kind of having the right kind of metaphor sitting under that. So what what storytelling technique really supports the story that needs to be told and what relationship does that have to it? that, that's really important to us. It's kind of like your physical experience has something to do with the story that's being told at the same time. So you would say that you could look at Sandpit and your practice as a studio that has a certain expertise in bringing new technologies to museums and using them in, in fun and innovative ways. But actually what I hear from the way you talk about your work is that really storytelling is at, the, as it is at the very core, right? It's not the technology, it's not the experience, it's really the, the story that you want to transmit to every unique visitor. Yeah, that's right. And I, but I, you know, when we think about story, we don't necessarily think about beginning, middle and end or kind of like a, a well-structured story. We like to kind of break that apart as well and go, how can we turn storytelling on its head a bit as well and go, well, maybe we can mix it up or kind of do it in a different way. But um, it's a really valuable part of the company too that we have um, a really broad skill set, um, like Rachel, who's our content strategist, who their, their job is to work the the story and the, the words more often than not. And they have a background as a, um, as a playwright um, and a really interesting playwright as well where it's not your three-act play that they're writing, but actually really turning that form on its head as well. So when we think about story as well, we like to be a, a little more critical of that as well. And go, so How can we actually adapt that construct to, to, to tell the information that we need to tell in the best way? And going back to the process, so you approach this, you soak it all up, you talk to people, you have this whole bucket of ingredients that you then take to create something. What's the kind of time frame you work with? Is it like three months, six months, is it a year? How long does it take to actually mount these experiences and make them tangible and experienceable? For a kind of medium-sized project, there's this magic three-month period that we we tend to fall into. Um, I don't know why that happens, but it's like three months tends to be a kind of medium-scale thing. But we've worked in anything from kind of two months right through to kind of two and a half years. So that's quite a big spectrum. But it's sometimes the, the best quality work you can kind of really bang out in eight weeks you know, if you're under pressure. <laughs> and then what happens? The work is done. The exhibition opens. Are you then, you and your team, kind of like sitting in a little corner and watching how people interact with it? Is this kind of a surprise because you can never know? Or do you test things before? How does it work? I'm a crazy person like this. I think I'm, people would think I'm a bit of a creep, actually, because as, as, um, as soon as we open a show or an experience, I'm usually sitting there kind of watching what people do. And it, that some of the best things we make is when you can kind of open it and then iterate and make changes after you've opened. Because we've been doing this for 10 years and we're still constantly shocked by the things that people do when you put them in these environments. They're human beings, right? So you can never fully predict what, what anyone's going to do until you've, you've built it and you, you can see. But yes, I do a lot of following people around and kind of spying on them as well. Do you have an example um, of a project where people profoundly experienced it differently or used it differently than you expected? I think um, I'm always surprised by the way people engage with screens. Um, we, um, we built a project. You see, this is a good one to describe. I think this describes Sam Pitt really well. So, um, and I was talking about this when I was in Vienna, but we worked with the State Library of Victoria, which is major Melbourne library. They had a new show three years ago now called Velvet Iron Ashes, which was um, a new exhibition. And we'd been speaking to the curator, Carolyn Fraser, for a few months before. 
she gave us the object list for the exhibition, which um, when I read it just looked like this list of stuff. There was no obvious connection between any of these things and it was really hard to kind of pee out a theme. And as soon as I started talking to Carolyn, who has this um, incredibly fastidious fascination and curiosity with the relationships between things, I realised that the show wasn't actually about the objects, it was about the interconnection between them. It was the sinew or the synapses between them. We knew that we needed to create something that could kind of bottle Carolyn or be able to kind of explain (laughs) in the best way we could to a lot of people how she was making these connections. So we made this device called the Mappomatic where you could turn these two mechanical dials and see objects in the collection kind of rotate on the screen and push a big physical button to connect two of those objects, which which would produce a map for you, which was like six degrees of separation. So you could jump between objects in the in the show and learn about their interconnections. Um, so yeah, it was this great kind of mechanical thing with these big dials and a big button um, and the, this kind of screen on it. But I was kind of doing my, my thing where I kind of creep around people and, and watch what they're doing. And people's temptation to touch a screen always astounds me. It's like people just assume things are touch screens. You can present them with these great kind of physical, tangible ways to interact. But uh, it's just the world we live in, I think, that, you know, you expect, audiences expect a touch screen. So it's, um, it makes me sad. <laughs> so, you know, but, um, you know, that's what we're up against. Okay. But I'm curious, like in these past 10 years or even like in a longer time frame, let's say 20 years where you've also been working as a theater director and so on, how do you see the behavior of people change as they interact with the physical world or with technology? Perfect example, touchscreens, you know, haven't really been around 12, 15 years ago when you used an iPod shuffle to, to create an experience. So how do you see behavior change as the technology that we use every day evolves as well? Actually, right now is a really hard time to actually analyze that and to, to think about how we've shifted. I think we're in a very kind of confused moment in history at the moment. I think what's happened during the pandemic is that... Um, you know, so many people have gone online, you know, have seen like a huge rise in streaming services, we've seen a huge rise in things like Zoom and, um, you know, collaboration happening online. But we've also got screen exhaustion, right? We've been sitting in front of these infernal machines for the past two years and that's been our life. So um, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens in the next couple of years, how people start to evolve um, how they want to experience these things after the pandemic. Um, we did a lot of work to try and, during lockdown to try and make um, engaging experiences happen online. But in the end, like what we really love at Sandpit is making tangible things that you know people can come together and experience in the real world. And so coupled with that, I think, was this kind of slight trepidation with us coming back after lockdown as well that people wouldn't want to touch physical things and that would be a real problem which hasn't really turned out that way the appetite we found was people want to be back in the real world and they want to be touching things i think it's a really kind of interesting and problematic and tricky time that we're in at the moment it's really hard to know where we're going to go and i think even as creators we're really reconciling how we feel about this stuff at the moment as well yeah i'm, I'm reconciling how i feel about it too <laughs> i mean i i feel like 
it's interesting what you say that people actually crave to touch things because especially through the last two years where everything has become more remote, more screen-based, more virtual, that, yeah, we're constantly being trained to use screens. Eventually we touch them. Eventually we, of course, we look at people through our screens, but the experience of, yeah, just listening to something and also like, for example, the the fragmentation of our experiences, both online and offline, through algorithms, for example, through constantly notifications that pop up, through things that remind us to do this and that, the ability that we, you know, the sensation that we can't seem to focus as much anymore as we used to like 10 years ago. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Does Does it mean that for experiences in the real world, when people go to a museum, you have to compete with that? You kind of like have to try to make experiences that are even more attention craving and demanding or does it go in the other direction does it become really sensual does it become really physical because that's what actually people miss in their day-to-day lives nowadays yeah i mean to be honest like a lot of the large-scale work that we're doing is that it's very kind of showy it's very immersive it's very kind of full-on so i hope that's not where we'll end up i hope particularly with the work that we do that people can crave detail and crave um minutiae and interaction and you know, and a socialized experience. But I, th- I think this stuff re- really came into focus during the pandemic for me because we um, were doing a lot of work with um, live performers in Australia. And, um, you know, that was an industry that was hit incredibly hard. Um, I had a lot of colleagues who were in really bad shape during that period of time because they didn't, obviously didn't have the audiences. So, you know, we, we did a lot of work kind of going, well, what does it mean to kind of bring live performance online? It's something that we did a lot of work with and, you know, thought about a lot. And it, it, it's such a problematic space because in the end, by putting a performance on YouTube <laughs> does not equate to the amazing experience of being in a theatre with live performers amongst a real audience who are responding together with what you're seeing and the incredibly complex transaction that happens between audience members and a live performer, um, that can't be replicated in a digital space at all. Do you take that into account in in maybe like future projects? Because that's another thing I, I observed, you know, in museums recently that similar to our online experiences, also our physical experiences in museums become increasingly individualized in a way that we enter a museum, we get a headset, it gets narrated, it might be individualized to our personal interests and stuff, which is, of course, very interesting because we're all different. We have different backgrounds and different interests, but at the same time, yeah, I could see a future where people also crave this collective experience of like, what does it mean to experience in an exhibition together? And how can we interact with each other in more interesting ways? There was a really good example of this years ago at um, SF MoMA in San Francisco, the, the art gallery. Um, they invested a lot of um, time and money into a platform called Detour that was a... Um, uh, walking to an app that you could download and there were different episodes for different cities around the world where you could walk around and the, the way it worked in the the real world was that um, there was GPS that would kind of follow where you were and uh, there'd be kind of a base track of sound design that would be consistent but then when you walked into the right zone um, using GPS it would kind of trigger more audio content that was relevant to where you are um, but SF MoMA adapted that to be indoors um, which was a great technical feat um, and I think they were using kind of a combination of Wi-Fi and Bluetooth to triangulate where people were in the galleries. 
um, and they had this great little trick with it that I've never seen anywhere since and I hope someone else does it where you could kind of load up a, um, a tour of the, the galleries um, and they had a few different options for what kind of theme you wanted um, and you could press play but then you could say connect to another device and so if you were there with someone else you could move through the space together and, ha- and just enjoy those sort of moments together where you laugh at the same time or you, like, you're shocked at the same time or, you know, um, and it's such a subtle shift, but it, I think that completely changes the experience and socialises it in a really great way. That experience kind of um, shut down four years ago, five years ago, I think. But, yeah, I haven't seen anything like that since and I'd love to see that, that sort of investment because I think... People just don't think about the subtlety of that, that it's like, oh, you can just kind of arrive at the same time and press play kind of at the same time. But actually, if you're perfectly in sync, that's a completely different way of experiencing the world than it is, you know, if you're in this closed-off headphone land all, all on your own. I'd like to zoom out a little bit now from the particular experience and work that we just discussed to maybe a broader view on the future of museums and cultural institutions, because you've been working in that field now for 10 years. I'm sure you know a whole lot about the history of interactive experiences in museums. And I'd like to talk about the future. Like, what do you think in a a broad sense, what do museums need to do in order to stay relevant for visitors in a world where we're constantly being entertained by our devices, immersed in the metaverse in the future. What do you think museums as physical institutions need to do to stay relevant and and keep people coming? It was really interesting, actually, my my recent trip to Europe, um, uh, going to a lot of these, like, incredible museums that have incredible histories and incredible heritage. Really actually thinking about the way that digital can be a really valuable tool to complicate things or, or problematize things. And I think his, museums in the West have this kind of history of um, simplifying narratives or, or simplifying history um, to make it consumable for a museum audience. Um, uh, I, I know there was a recent visit to a museum where we were talking about the way that the, um, the museum had presented ancient Greek ancient Egyptian, ancient Assyrian and ancient Roman history in all in their own lanes. Um, but talking about how actually we might be able to kind of complexify those histories because at, at different times all of those civilizations were, conte- were contemporaneous with each other. Um, so the, the story there is a lot more complex than these kind of isolated civilizations in their own lane. I mean, this, this is why we love using kind of sound and sound design and audio tours as a tool because it kind of creates this invisible layer that can be added on on top of what you see with your own eyes. Um, so you can actually start to complicate those narratives um, and actually expose the, um, the kind of fallacy that they, they exist in, the, in their own lanes. Um, and I, th- I think that really strongly applies to kind of a, a, an imperial or colonial history of the West as well. Um, and to think about, you know, the, the way a lot of kind of stolen objects have ended up in these kind of large museums all across the Western world. The lies, frankly, that have been told um, of the provenance of those objects, but um, the way that digital can be this kind of like punk layer <laughs> that can be added on top to actually kind of go, well, the story is a lot more complicated than that. And, and here's a version of that. So you would say that 
the combination of both the physical experience and like a sort of digital layer or a multi-sensory layer bears really a lot of opportunities still for in the future to create these experiences where visitors might be able to understand things in far more complexity than they would be able to do now. Right. And I, I think like increasingly audiences are way more capable than they ever have been to to understand complex narratives all at the same time. In the kind of late 90s and early noughties, I was a big fan of a British theatre company called Forced Entertainment and their director, Tim Etchells, always said this great thing about um, how when he grew up in the 70s and the 80s, uh, they would have the narrative of the, the, the dinner table together at night where his family would sit down and have dinner and they were kind of talking, but the TV would be on in the corner of the room and he kind of grew up with that. So he had this ability growing up at that time to actually in his head, accommodate multiple narratives at the same time. You could have the dinner conversation and the TV at the same time. And those things have a dialogue with each other and they're not. You know. um, but actually, like, the, the way we consume media now, I think we're way more capable of dealing with, like, one, two, three, four different narratives happening all at the same time. Um, and I think that's a really interesting space with what we're saying about kind of um, embracing the complexity of things. The Culture and Technology Podcast is produced by the Vienna Business Agency. The Vienna Business Agency supports businesses, the economy, and the city to develop Vienna's creative industries further.